What's up, everyone, and welcome to episode 166 of the Just an Insight podcast, a show where we talk to people involved in the world of alternative music and their journey through it. As always, my name is Tim Burbeck. I am your host through this show. Um, and once again, we're having quite a quiet week in terms of the intro. Not a whole lot sort of going on in the world. Uh, we've had the Art Tangent lineup announcements, which is pretty cool. Cult of Luna, Opeth being the, the headliners announced so far, but loads and loads and loads of other cool bands playing next year's festival. Um, a lot of rescheduled from who were meant to play this year, but because of obviously COVID and so on and so forth, that hasn't happened. But yeah, not a whole lot to report on uh, this week. So again, we're going to keep this intro pretty short. Um, I'm recording this a little bit ahead of schedule because I'm actually taking a well-deserved weekend off. I'm going to see uh, my best friend in Bristol. So if anything happens over the weekend that I probably would have mentioned, then and you're expecting me to. I don't know if you would or not. But the reason I'm not is because I'm recording this on a Friday. Um, but yeah, I'm going to... As I say, keep this intro as short and sweet as possible, and we'll get straight on to our guest. And this one was a really, really cool little chat. Um, I'm joined this week by a guitarist and songwriter from uh, UK Punk's Dream Nails, uh, Anya Pearson. Um, during the discussion, we talk about the influence that Tony Hawk's Pro Skater kind of had, not just on her, but on the band in general. Um, how... She kind of came to punk a little bit later and it wasn't until she kind of met Janie, the singer of Dream Nails, and her sort of journey through music in, in various different forms. Um, and how now, like, the band is kind of... has this almost kind of tongue-in-cheek fun approach to what are quite some quite serious subjects and how that's the way they approach it and that's the way they want to kind of put that message across. And I think it works really, really well. The Dream Nails record is one that's on heavy rotation for me at the moment so yeah that's kind of pretty much the the wrap of this one so sit back enjoy the chat i have with anya and i'll see you on the other side so joining me this week on the justin insight podcast is guitarist of uh uk punks dream nails uh anya pearson anya thank you very much for taking some time out of your day. Um, I guess, aside from the record release, how's everything going? Like, it's kind of a weird time to be promoting a record, but you seem to be nailing it, excuse the pun. <laughs> I love that, nailing it, yes. Uh, thanks so much. That's really, it's really lovely to be on this podcast. And um, it has been a funny old year for music. I mean, yeah, when we first figured out that we were going to have to, like, cancel our album tour and, like, postpone the album release... We felt like we were in a bit of a pickle, but I feel like we've made the most out of the situation. I think we've been making hay where we can, and like it's sort of turned out actually fine. And we're really happy with the reception of our album so far, and like, yeah. we're really happy about how people are like sort of like responding to it. So it's all good, really. Obviously, the backdrop of like a zombie apocalypse aside, <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> well, because I want to kind of touch upon like how you've kind of been dealing with the the unusual release cycle a little bit down the line but how I always kind of start things off is to ask like how did you kind of like get into alternative music like what was your kind of first exposure to to that sort of side of the world mm, that's a good question um I guess that like you know early teens I just got into skateboarding and listening to Green Day and Nirvana 
uh, Rage Against the Machine and, and bands like that. And then I taught myself to play guitar like by listening to those songs um, and, and figuring out what chords they were using. And, and I started writing my own songs. And yeah, Sixth Form made my first indie band. Like, you know, we kind of wanted to be the, the Libertines sort of at that okay. point. The Libertines were really big in at like, you know, 2004 or whenever it was. Um, but yeah, in terms of like alternative music, like punk music, it wasn't really until um, I met Janie, the singer, in a feminist activist group that uh, when she invited me to sort of start a punk band with her. And I was like, oh, I never really thought about like being in a punk band, but sure, like, why not? Sounds fun. Because it was going to be a feminist punk band. And I was super like feminist, still am obviously. And like, it just seemed to like marry two of my interests in quite a unique, different way. And I mm. wanted to give it a shot. So the, you mentioned kind of like, the kind of like skate culture and like Green Day and Nirvana and stuff like that. So mm. what kind of got you into into skateboarding and, and that side of things? Um, now I think about it, probably playing Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and being like, whoa, I want to try some of those tricks. And like me and my brother and like one of my best friends, Max, were like out on the street after school, like trying to, trying to land ollies and stuff when I was about 12. Um, but like to be honest I quickly realized when I went to secondary school that like girls didn't skateboard just the boys mm. um and I think looking back I kind of ended up giving up like a year or so later because there was I never had anyone to skate with yeah <laughs> the boys were like really really not into skating with a girl and were really like kind of rude about it yeah so, you know skateboarding by yourself is a bit lonely so I moved on so <laughs> I can like... still land an ollie <laughs> I mean, that's more than I could do. Like, I think like when I was younger, I like, pushed along for a little bit, fell off, hurt my arm. And I was like, no, nope, I don't want to do this anymore. Whoa, that's intense. I've never had such a big injury. That's, yeah. that's something to think about, especially with me. You know, you get older, your bones get more brittle. Like, we can't be risking, like, a trip to A&E. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you've mentioned, like, I guess a lot of people say, like, with the Tony Hawk soundtrack, that was obviously, like, an eye opener and, and things like that but like I don't know were people kind of like within the skate community putting you onto bands or was it just because you were around that that you kind of like heard the music and then were sort of discovering things that way yeah that's interesting actually I I can almost remember like every single track on the pro skater soundtrack and like so many of the lyrics are really stuck in my head probably just because I've played that game so much yeah and, yeah like, it's only got like 12 songs on the soundtrack so like after a while you just like know it inside out and I do think like it was that and it was also like picking up like copies of Kerrang from kids at school and like figuring out that Kerrang was a thing you could buy that told you about new music new bands and like hanging out in the obviously a lot more record store like actual record stores like when I was a teenager so I used to like mooch around record stores and like pick out random CDs and listen on the listening posts and just like kind of discover and explore in a very naive um and kind of tentative way because it's just different now like the way that you discover music it's it it was way more of a um slow process when I was little and I also remember that it was like CDs were such a precious commodity yeah but like you know I, I remember making friends with a, a kind of alternative girl at school and she would like burn me Deftones CDs and that was <laughs> yeah. a huge deal because like I didn't have any Deftones music and CDs were like fifteen ninety nine or something. So, you know, you're walking home from school with all these Deftone CDs and you're like, yeah. But I was also <laughs> listening to like Outkast, like a lot of kids at my school more into hip hop and rap and R&B. So like kids were like making me like mixtapes. I'd make them mixtapes. It was like a very sweet um, 
a very sweet kind of exchange of, of musical tastes. Yeah, I think like yeah. that was kind of a similar thing. Like I remember a little bit later down the line, but when sort of Enter Shikari were like the band of the moment, like it was really hard to get hold of like their music physically. And a friend of mine just basically like burnt their dis- like, at the time their discography onto a CD for me, and it was sort that of thanks. like, oh, sick! I finally got it, kind of thing. So <laughs> yeah, and like just on a complete tangent, just because like it's on my head, but because obviously they've re-released the the Tony Hawk's games. Have you seen the the documentary that they've done on it? No, I would absolutely love okay. to see that. <laughs> so there's like an hour long documentary about like how the game, like the original game came to be and, and things like that, like a, around the like the new re-release that's happened recently. Um, and they introduce like some of the songs and like you saying like rem- uh, having the memory of them. As soon as like the Goldfinger track came on, I was just sat there in my room, just like singing along to the songs, just because like it's that like muscle memory of it, like clicking yeah. back to when you were a kid, kind of thing. Hundred percent, hundred percent. And so, like, I do think that the Dream Nails album was it was totally because we all played that game, like all the members of the band, we all played that game, and we definitely all like just absorbed the music. And I think we should we should be quoting the Dream Nails uh, band, like sorry, the Pro Skater soundtrack as like the, one of the key inspirations for the album, like hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. then in terms of you kind of like, as you say, kind of mooching around and like record stores and getting these like fancy CDs from friends and things, like were there kind of, apart from like your Green Days and stuff, and as you say, kind of like learning guitar that way, What were there any specific bands that you can remember that you were like really drawn to that you were kind of like, okay, this is my band now, like I've discovered this band, I want to kind of absorb everything that they're doing kind of thing? Mm. Um. Yeah, I think that like I was very I was very interested in like Connor Oberst's work. Like not okay. only Bright Eyes, not only Bright Eyes. I think he's a really incredible lyricist and like yeah, I was really into like early Bright Eyes CDs. And then I also kind of found out that he was in this kind of like more alternative, like quite emo, very noisy punk band called Desaparecidos. Who okay, I, think I don't only, think I've ever heard like, of it. Yeah, they're not really very well known. I think I stumbled across someone like a, a CD sampler, like remember them, you get them in a magazine. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. 10 tracks. Um, and I'm pretty sure I, I found out about them through that. And it was really distorted, really punk, kind of he's screaming a lot of the time. Um, and the songs are incredible. So that for a long time was like pretty much my favorite artist. And I was so sad they'd only done one album. And then I realized recently they'd done another one. So I listened to it and it was awesome. Uh, so yeah, that's like, yeah, Connor Oberst used to be a big, big inspiration for me. He's, I think he's, I still think he's great. I mean, yeah, yeah. Good. And as you say, kind of like you quite like young picked up, picked up the guitar and sort of like were teaching yourself these, these songs. But what kind of like drew you to want to play the guitar? Like, is there musical influences in your family or was it just because you were listening to this stuff that you were like, I want to give that a go? Like, where did that all kind of come into it? Mm, um, well, I guess I grew up like playing the piano. Um, I had a really awesome piano teacher who also taught me like composition at quite an early age. Okay. So I was writing my own piano pieces um, and like doing a lot of improvisation stuff on piano. Um, but the reason I turned to guitar was I think, well, like my mum is a guitarist. So she, she was like in one of the first feminist rock bands in the UK in like the oh, 70s. Sick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, called the Stepney Sisters. They like, all met in like 
squats in East London. And That's then, sick. Like, yeah, really cool. Like totally path breaking stuff. Um, so I always grew up with my mum playing like guitar in my house and she like gave me a Fender Strat that she used to own for my first guitar. So I was like learning from her. Like I remember her teaching me how to strum the guitar, but then I think, you know, I took it off and like learned it by myself kind of. Um, so yeah, like my mum's been a huge inspiration musically for me. And it's kind of mad that like, although I've been in plenty of other bands before Dreamnails, I've ended up in a feminist <laughs> rock band. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like really bizarre. <laughs> so like, obviously when you were younger, did you kind of like understand what it was that your mum was doing in, in that band? Or like, is it kind of like now looking back in hindsight that you've kind of followed a similar, similar path? Or was it just when you were younger, like, oh, mum's in a band, like that kind of yeah. thing? Well, obviously, when you're a kid, like anything your mum and dad do, you think everyone's mum and dad does that. So I was like, oh, yeah, of course, everyone's parents like sit in the basement playing like experimental jazz with their mates. And then I, <laughs> a bit later, I was like, oh, wait, this is just something that my mum does. And yeah. I always knew my mum was like a super gifted like singer and musician because she could just play any Beatles song, like just whip it out and play it. And we'd all like to sing along at like parties and stuff. So um, there was that. But I, I suppose as well, yeah, just thinking about it now, it's hard to remember exactly. But um, yeah, it's a funny thing. And like, because I think it's quite interesting, because I'm going to, I'm making a bit of an assumption here. So please, like, correct me if I'm wrong. But at that time, there weren't that many, especially in the mainstream media, and like, even like mainstream sort of like alternative rock, there weren't that many sort of like, women let alone women guitarists like mm. that were sort of prominent but because you had this role model in your mum did that kind of make things different at all like I guess yeah, in terms of like an inspirational sort of like figure that you were kind of learning off yeah it didn't it didn't like I think you can be brought up in a by a feminist in a feminist household but as soon as you go to start going to school there's like a whole world out there. And I, I think I got lots of like pretty dark messages in terms of what women or what girls were and weren't supposed to do. And I remember being like really feeling really excluded by um, all the kids at my secondary school who were in bands, they were all boys. And there was a band that I used to rehearse over the road for me. I could hear their music from my house because it was so loud. And they were playing like kind of grunge um, rock and I, like even though I knew them all quite well they never invited me to like play with them it was I yeah mean, I, I was expected to go to their gigs as a, as a friend as a neighbor and like support them but like the idea that I might actually play guitar good enough to be in a band was like totally not on the table and then the music department at my school like was very male orientated as well and a lot of girls I know at my school like were great musicians but they just stopped playing so we didn't really have that many role models we had this was like the age of like you know, Linkin Park and like Slipknot and Fred Durst. And, you know, there were loads of like guys doing it. But apart from like Courtney Love, I can't really think of any other female like alternative musicians that were really on my radar. And like, yeah. you can't be what you can't see. So it didn't really strike me as a possibility that I could even play guitar or start a band, even though my mum herself was doing it because my it, you listen to your peers when you're a teenager you don't listen to yeah, your mom yeah. so your mom's saying you can <laughs> yeah. do it you're like shut up mom you don't know what it's like <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's how it felt anyway 
so like in that aspect was it kind of like obviously now it's proven that you're like you're doing a band that's got no sorority and is, is quite successful but in those early days like was it kind of disheartening like that you had this passion for something that I guess at the time you were kind of discovering what you wanted to do with it but you weren't kind of being nurtured in the right way like was that quite a difficult thing to take or did you not kind of really comprehend what was going on at that age um what like when I was a teenager kind of thing. yeah yeah I remember feeling pretty bummed out about it and I remember just feeling like I didn't have a place um they were like there wasn't a place for me in terms of music I mean I I kind of gave up on music for a while actually but it's like an insecurity it's a feeling of imposter syndrome that I think a lot of women experience in in lots of places but yeah it I kind of it took me a while to kind of get back around to playing in a band because even though I'd started an awesome band at sixth form with like some like a girl and two boys um, and we would did we did great and I was in another band at uni even still in my 20s when I was back in London this imposter syndrome sort of happened where like I just didn't feel like I belonged in like the music industry really didn't really yeah, feel like yeah. I, I would have any like success there and there was no point um, yeah so it, it took like several more attempts before a band I was in like really made made like got traction and like got a lot of fans and yeah I'm glad I persevered but there were so many moments where I did give up hmm. <laughs> do you know what I mean yeah yeah so then in terms of you kind of actually like playing music you mentioned that sort of kind of libertines-esque sort of sixth form band yeah so yeah. did that kind of like did you like gig much with that band or was it just kind of very much like a sixth form band you do like the odd battle of the bands kind of thing or did you kind of pursue it outside of the, the sixth form yeah it's so funny like we actually took ourselves really seriously we were called hotel ukraine and we rehearsed that's a pretty cool friday name after... thank you we rehearsed every friday after school and it, we did like the whole circuit like as i said like you know it was the era of like larrikin love and the libertines and stuff like that and we were like playing the same venues as like those bands were breaking through in so like dublin castle Oh, awesome. Anchor, Rhythm Factory, Lark in the Park, like all the greats. We must have done like maybe as many as like 20 or 30 gigs. But we were all like 17 or 18 years old. It was hilarious. Um, and, you know, like everyone from school would come, like all our sixth form mates would come and we'd like make our own flyers, photocopy them and hand them out in the playground and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was it was awesome. I mean, it was good experience. Like it's really good for you just to like, you know what's it cut your teeth like yeah. playing live and just to yeah just to kind of be that band that like people in your school want to go and see it feels like success in its own way when you're that age because you don't really know about the world at large yeah yeah so <laughs> yeah. in in that terms like because i think it's quite unusual for especially like like sixth form college or whatever like to kind of go outside of like your local bubble like you might maybe go mm. to like the next town over and I, I know like a lot of those venues that you mentioned are in London but London's obviously like you could go from I don't know like Camden to Putney and it's completely different sort of thing yeah so like for you like as a young band like how did you kind of find these shows and how did you know like what to seek out or was it just b because people 
had heard your band that they approached you how did it kind of work in those those early days um yeah this is really bringing me back i mean i remember we set up a mice page myspace page and we put our like demos on there that we'd recorded with like our um singer and guitarist nick's like dad's friend so okay. like, we were like you know you did some demos and i mean like we were a bit shoddy because the first rehearsal we did was literally like we just found a bassist like nick's friend just like turn up with a bass and we didn't really have like any microphones and it was just in like our six forms music department but it was really shit and there's like a broken amp and like half a drum kit and i'd written like one song that i wanted everyone to start like trying to learn and it was an absolute joke but like we pretty quickly realized there were enough sort of like amateur like part-time promoters in london that if you just like asked them for a gig and said you could bring 20 to 30 people and you brought those people along because you're at school so it's easy then you could have another gig and you know they'd give us a door split which was probably about 30 or 40 quid or something like <laughs> yeah. that and you know everyone that would turn up would just be there for you and they would we'd all leave um but it was like properly like the toilet circuit but I loved it and so many of those venues now they've closed down so yeah yeah I feel like I feel quite priv privileged to sort of have, have played in a certain time in a certain genre of band that feels quite like nostalgic to me now yeah and yeah. in terms of that because like obviously as I mentioned like London's kind of got the, its own sort of music scene within itself sort of thing but f like for you, when you were like discovering sort of like the live side of music, were you like attending shows much or was it more so that you started playing shows first and then started going, going to live shows? Yeah, that's a good question. I reckon that I'd, by the time I hit 18, I'd played in so many more shows I'd actually attended. I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I think I've probably only been to like, three or four or five gigs by the time I was 18. I think I went to see like Amy Winehouse, Jill Scott, and then like um, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Green Day and Brendan Benson. I think, I honestly can't remember going to any more gigs than that at the age of 18, but I'd probably played three times that. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's just really funny. I remember as well, like when we, we did struggle when we first started out in Hotel Ukraine, my sixth one band, because we couldn't really get any gigs. We didn't have any experience. So we just like, we wanted to be like the Libertines, as I said. So we kind of set up our own like guerrilla gig in this, like the playground of a girl's school that like, okay. was part of our sixth form, like a Catholic girl's school. And there was like, there was like an apple tree or something. And we like sat by it and like just played there and like hoped that people would come and watch because <laughs> we were so desperate to perform. But we didn't realize that with a guerrilla gig, you still have to like have fans and invite them. <laughs> Otherwise you're just busking by a tree. <laughs> brilliant so then in terms of kind of like moving on to I guess pursuing other avenues like you mentioned yeah going off to uni and starting a band there so what was what was that band like and what did you go off to, to uni to study um so oh yes yeah, so I went to uni I went to Leeds um, okay and I and I and I was like I think I think I was like pretty keen to start a band straight away and when you're at uni it's a lot easier because you know you've got like music societies and band societies and this and that so me and the singer from Hotel Ukraine Nick Taylor we wanted to start a new band up in Leeds and we found members and we wanted it to be a bit more like ska 
ska folk indie again okay. like, we were super influenced by like larrikin love and um, the kind of folk scene that was happening so we wanted it to be a little bit more earthy we had a violinist we had a trombone player um and we a revolving like cast of drummers <laughs> and, yeah. yeah that was exciting that was that was a whole new and for me as a songwriter that was a whole new like cast of instruments for me to be able to sort of like draw on and I was still figuring out like how to write with different instruments and stuff so it was a, it was a good like moment for me to sort of stretch my abilities a bit yeah so in terms of like the the songwriting sort of side of things because I always find this interesting so just kind of give a bit of perspective like I'm a vocalist in like a screamy mathcore grind band and Amazing. I literally just write the vocals like I have no idea about how to like compose the musical side of things so I always find it really fascinating when like my bandmates like we get in a practice room and they come up with these insane riffs and I'm just like how the fuck did you do that sort of thing <laughs> yeah. but like just because obviously you mentioned they're kind of like playing with like the different instruments and the sort of like how to construct a song out of those like how did you kind of like learn that sort of side of things and w was it just kind of trial and error or was it someone kind of showed you kind of like the bare bones of what makes a basic song and then you kind of pulled the strings together like how does that because I yeah my mind just doesn't work like that <laughs> yeah that's, that's a good question um I think that it is ultimately trial and error in that you've got to write a lot of shit songs before you write songs that are worth like, well, you write before you write songs that other people love and want to share. <laughs> yeah. Because, because I think that's, that's fine. I mean, some people obviously are just really talented and the first song they write is a multi-million dollar like hit. But for me, it was more like just honing your craft, like making mistakes and stuff like that. Um, I do think it was it was helpful to have like a little bit of background with my piano teacher, like encouraging me to write creatively and like sort of some of the some of the elements of like writing melodies and 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 sort of chords and, and things like that. So I had that somewhere in the back of my head. But ultimately, like when I was, a, I guess, a teenager sitting down with my guitar and thinking, all right, I want to start a band, so I'm going to need to have some songs. Um, it was very much like messing around, like a lot of my early songs were kind of like nonsense songs. Okay. Not literally nonsense, but like the lyrical content, let's just say, wasn't A grade. And it, a lot of it was like, <laughs> yeah. I was very focused on trying to write something that didn't sound like anything anyone had ever written because I didn't want to be cliched. But I think I went too far into like really obscure or off-key like song topics and, and weird, weird rhymes. It was almost okay. like... When you're a teenager, you just don't want to be a cliche. You want to be different, right? Yeah. You want to be like, you know, this outsider thing. So that was my attempt. But I've since realized, and it's taken a lot of bands for me to realize that if you can say something true in like really simple terms, then that's normally when your song's going to like resonate with people. Not always, yeah. but often. So if anything, I've learned to keep things a lot more simple and a lot more direct. And punk's a great genre for that anyway, because you can be cryptic with punk, but you don't have to be. And often it's better when you're not. Just be blunt, say what you've got to say. So it took me a long time to basically get to, get to punk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and just because I'm interested now, like what were some of those like weird like topics and subjects that you were kind of touching on when you were younger? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, bear in mind that none of these songs had like a meaning, like they didn't actually weren't about anything. 
We yeah, had yeah. one called Chalk Corpse Outlines, which I nice. honestly can't. But it's like I was like, this is a cool image, and then I was like, I'm gonna write a song about it, and I had no idea what it meant to me. So that was a bit like weird. I guess it was about like someone who hated winter and was maybe breaking up with somebody. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't make honestly. It was just a sure. And I had another one called um, Late Night, Early Morning which was, I think, generally about how annoying everyone is and then staying up late. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> so you get the idea. Yeah, yeah. So, so then in terms of that band that you started at uni, like, I, don't, I always find it interesting, like, with uni bands, especially if, like, you're not going to maybe necessarily stick around where you're, you're, you're at or, like, things like that. So... I don't know. Did you always kind of go into it, know it, knowing it was just going to be a uni band, or were there kind of like, did you kind of again go out and do much, or was it just something that you kind of did to pass the time whilst you were at uni? Yeah, um, I'm pretty sure that when I was like 19, starting uni, I thought three years is practically a lifetime. So I think yeah. I thought that like moving to Leeds and like starting a band was like a whole new fucking chapter, and I couldn't really see beyond it. So I think I just immersed fully in like living in Leeds and like starting this Leeds band. And of course the plan is always to get signed and have world domination within a year. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, you've got all these hopes, you've got all these dreams. Um, and while we did do a shit ton of gigging in, in Leeds and to a certain extent, we did have a few fans, like genuine fans as well. Um, and we did a couple of EPs and, and all these things. Ultimately like, yeah, as you say, like when uni ended, and it ends so suddenly, like one minute you're just drinking cider in a park and like arguing about what club to go to in the evening and like, you know, counting your pennies to see if you've got money for like going to a curry house beforehand or something. You go from that and then suddenly it's just this rude awakening. You're spat out into post-uni. Post and of course, it was a bit of a, it was a massive recession at the time. So everyone was freaking yeah. out about like not having jobs and stuff. Um so we just all scarpered from Leeds and the band never really got back together. Like it wasn't a planned ending as much as a sort of messy ending, but a lot of us are still really good friends from that band and um, they're wonderful musicians in, in their own right. And, you know, um, the singer and trombonist is now like a really successful opera singer. And, and oh, wow. Singer. Yeah. So it's like everyone's still doing their own thing and, and stuff, but it is a shame. I guess it just, yeah, ended. I don't even <laughs> yeah. know what. The, I honestly can't explain it. But what was nice is that me and Nick. So like me and Nick have had like a very long history together. So like we were in our school band together. We were in our uni band together, and then we started another band when we got back to London after uni called Leisure, and that was like a alternative like indie R and B outfit. And Nick was on bass, and I was on synth. So like we were in three different bands in three That's different cool. places of our lives. Yeah, yeah. So me and Nick kept it going and then that's it and then the singer from our uni band Beth she got on board with Leisure as well so we actually kept working with her um for for a couple more years doing our our Leisure thing that's cool <laughs> so yeah it was nice to like keep some of the members going in this new configuration yeah so yeah. then in terms of of that like I always find it interesting because I know you said like with um like your your school bands that you kind of did like the London circuit and, and things like that and obviously in uni probably doing stuff around Leeds and just sort of like the Yorkshire kind of way but what was your kind of first sort of band that kind of like actually went out and did sort of like 
either weekenders or tours or, or things like that? Like, what was your f- first experience of that? Um, so my first ever experience of that was playing synth in an, like an indie pop band called Being There, who were signed to Young and Lost Records. And um, I joined them for a year or so playing synth. And I remember we went to Manchester to play at a festival and I'd never done such a thing before. I was so excited. I, I was like, I was like, I was like 24 or something like that. Like it, maybe 23. I don't know. I was like in my mid twenties. I'd never yeah. played really a gig in a new city pretty much. Um, and I was like, oh my God, we're getting on a train. We're going to a gig. We're doing a gig, <laughs> another, doing a gig in another city. Oh my God. We're like, you know, we're at a festival. We're on the bill. And I was like, this is madness. Cause I'd never, never, never really had a taste of it. Um, but really that was my only time. And then after that, it was just dream nails. Like yeah. when we first got invited to play a gig in another country, my hat fell off my head. I was so shocked. I was like, this is the most <laughs> so thrilling thing has ever happened to us. We are getting on a plane to play a gig. I remember we went to like Belgium and we played a gig in another country. And we were like, I was like, I cannot cope with how exciting this is. Uh, there's this, there this um, organization called Girls Go Boom, who are like a feminist um, music organization based in Belgium and Amsterdam, Netherlands. And yeah, they, they, I think they flew us over to play, to play a couple of shows. I could not cope with the excitement, honestly. It was just yeah. a whole new world <laughs> to me. <laughs> so I'm not going to sort of like go through every single step of, of like your musical career, but... Can you give us like a little whistle top, a whistle top, whistle stop even mm. between that sort of like uni band and leisure to where we are in Dream Nails? Like what was the kind of like evolution of Anya, so to say? Um, yeah, so as I said, Artie Bella was my uni band. Leisure was post-uni, like for a few years band. I was also playing in Being There, this other band that someone else, um, my friend Sam had. And then it was Dream Nails. Yeah, yeah there wasn't okay. anything else happening um really trying to think if i've forgot i feel bad if i've forgotten anything that was involved with it it's not that it didn't mean anything to me it's just that right now i can't remember it but those are the (laughs) those are the those are the main bands um yeah and i and i stopped being in leisure the same year that i started doing dream nails um partly because like you know stuff with leisure had like been wicked and but it also like our drummer quit so like it right he he was very a very integral part of the sound so we just like yeah it needed to end at that point and then dream nails sort of started the same year which is 2015 yeah. um, and like the things that things with dream nails like unlike all the other bands were escalating they had always meant momentum even yeah. from the first gig it had momentum and i remember that because i'd been just so experienced with other bands in my life all you know about 10 years worth of experience at that point i knew there was something very different about dream nails and I was like really keen to see what would happen because it just felt like there was something happening with it. Yeah. Like something was like stirring beneath the surface. Like I can't really explain it, but I just, I always knew that like, yeah, good stuff yeah. is going to happen with it. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> um, yeah. Before we kind of like dive deep into to Dream Nails, just kind of want to touch upon a few things about you personally, in kind of in regards to the band, but because obviously what dream nails stands for and kind of speaks about publicly is very kind of the pro lgbtq plus like queer community and like you all speak out very openly about activism and things like that so i just kind of wanted to get your kind of journey into that kind of world of things like 
I guess the more like political side of things and kind of like wanting to take an active part in activism. So when did you kind of become like quote unquote interested in politics and like the feminist movement? I guess partly like having your mum as a as a role model is some part of that, but like discovering it off your own back, where did that all come from? Yeah, so I guess I've always been interested in politics. When I was like a kid, um, me and some family friends went to Cornwall on holiday. We went to Padstow and um, there was a shop that sold like loads of gollywogs in in the village. And we were like, honestly, I was like only probably about 12 or something. And I was like, what the flip is this? So we staged a boycott, like we staged a protest outside the shop with like, with like me and just like a load of kids, mostly under 10, like family friends made like banners and stuff and like chanted and chanted. And we got like the shop closed down for the day and then the police were called and it was like an actual scene. Oh, <laughs> so wow. I'm always being like a little bit, a little bit like that, you know, a little bit that way inclined. Um, but yeah, I suppose like one of the biggest sort of political moments for me was probably um oh, one would be like campaigning in the 2015 um election i went over to thurrock and essex and i campaigned for the labor party for like six weeks um like campaigning against the ukip candidate and trying okay. to support the labor candidate there so like yeah just like doing a lot of talking and campaigning about populism and racism and sort of deprivation in England and and yeah that was really eye-opening and then at the um, the same year I also joined um, Sisters Uncut the feminist organization where me and Janie met and that was like yeah also a really eye-opening experience I mean I'd I'd studied politics through doing like a a history and sociology degree and I'd done a history MA as well so like I was versed on like reading about politics and like talking about politics but actually doing like getting out there and like trying to make change was something that I learned a lot about in 2015. Yeah. And then mm. like, obviously if you don't feel entirely comfortable talking about this, then I'll just move on. But obviously like you as a band kind of obviously again, speak up about sort of like being openly queer and things like that. And I just kind of wanted to talk about like your personal journey through that, if that's okay. Like in terms of just like, I guess, you discovering like your own queerness like your own body and things like that like was that kind of a difficult thing to for you to comprehend or was it just something that you kind of felt was always there under the surface and you you just kind of I I guess as you got older became more comfortable with it what was that all like yeah I mean I guess I guess like part of me always knew I was queer but um didn't maybe feel like it was an acceptable thing especially not in like kind of um secondary schools and sixth forms that I went to where it wasn't it was what there weren't really any out kids so mm. it wasn't really something that I came to terms with until a bit later like yeah maybe like sort of five six years ago where I sort of decided actually I was gonna sort of come out and do the whole thing um and yeah being queer like I guess is a bit more of a political identity which has sort of felt like I've developed partly through like being in dream nails and like becoming more immersed in like queer and queer alternative like scenes not just in London but like around Europe um sort of meeting so many queer people and sort of queer activists and yeah just understanding more about what that means and and what community means for like LGBT people Mm. and just again quickly before we move into Dream Nails deeply like 
I always find it interesting when I have sort of like a, a woman or a non-binary person or someone of colour, like their experience through kind of like the scene, so to say. And I know you said you didn't really kind of discover the punk side really until Dream Nails and sort of meeting Janie and things like that. But obviously you was part of like playing in the wider musical industry sort of thing. So like, I don't know, like, did you ever, because you said like for a bit, being a bit disheartened when you sort of started playing guitar, but when you were out gigging and, and things like that, I, I'm, again, I'm kind of making a bit of an assumption, but I know speaking to other people that at the time, like being a woman in a band, if you weren't like either the vocalist or like, I'm being very stereotypical here, but like a Hayley Williams-esque person, it was unusual sort of thing. So did you ever kind of get like any like pushback, any like negative attitude for you being like a woman guitarist in the band? Or was it just not something that you kind of like thought about and addressed? Oh, well, um, during Dreamnails times or before that? But Well, yeah, before. Um, let me think. I mean, sound engineers are like constantly the bane of any female musician's focus <laughs> yeah. life. So I think I learned pretty early on that there were a there's a certain breed of man who was always going to make my life difficult. I mean, even when I was 17 years old, plugging in my guitar and trying to sound check, there was always going to be an asshole behind the engineering desk, just telling me patronizing things and expecting me not to know like where to plug my guitar in and stuff like that. So yeah, I've had to like navigate that kind of attitude for such a long time now, like 15 years. Um, yeah. but when it comes to like my peers I think they also just expected me as in like other you know pe other people in bands my age whatever age that's been they've always expected me to actually just be a bit shit and like they're always really surprised and pleasantly yeah, surprised yeah. when they actually see that I can like I can shred I can play well I can play fast they can't they're just a bit like taken aback and, and maybe it sometimes used to make them less so now but it used to make them a bit uncomfortable like it wasn't really what they wanted to see um, yeah well so there were I know. some exceptions to that and I played I played in bands with boys like loads of different bands and it's always they've always been great but it's yeah. it's kind of you know the other ones yeah <laughs> well, <'cause laughs> I know like a, a few friends of mine who have had the like the oh you're good for a girl comment and and things like that and I just think like I know attitudes have changed a lot now but obviously they're still not perfect but yeah, I, I just saw, because obviously I don't have that lived experience, I always find it interesting to kind of hear what it was like for someone that's kind of gone through that. And how, I guess like, not how they deal with it, but I think like from speaking to various sort of like, like women musicians and things like that, like just the amazement that I find like that it's almost not shrugged off, but it's just sort of like, we have to deal with it kind of thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's definitely part of the job description yeah. <laughs> that you have to deal with assholes. Um, I've noticed that as I become like semi-professional and like I'm just interacting with a different level of prick, it's more likely to be like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, instead of instead of being surprised that I'm good, which, you know, obviously at this point they have to kind of assume I can play, um, they're more likely to kind of like talk tech at me in a really random, weird way that okay. like it's intended that I'm not going to understand them. Like I'm a guitarist, I'm a musician. I'm not an expert on all Fender 
guitars. I'm not. Oh, I'm so they go like myself. proper like dig like gig deep sort of thing. They'll yeah, they'll like immediately tell me about my guitar or they'll tell me about another Fender guitar that I've not heard of or haven't played and tell me exactly why it wasn't good or was good. And then they will discuss like or they might like talk about amps, like and then talk about some ridiculously like long winded homage like i don't know some techie thing that like you know if i was claiming to be a sound engineer or a producer i should know but i'm not i'm i'm a musician like i play guitar it's not i'm not obsessed with like guitar tech and it's really difficult to get yourself out of these conversations because ultimately they're not really meant to engage you they're meant to impress you and to intimidate you and yeah yeah it's just i i can tell when someone's being sweet and wanting to talk about guitars it's an enjoyable conversation for us both, but this isn't that. This is like, they're intimidated by me, so they're trying to make me feel small, and they'll do it through some random comment about Fender <laughs> from 2001 or 1969. I'm just like, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's, just, it's really annoying. It happens quite a lot. And yeah, that's my yeah. theory on it. No, that's fair enough. Well, I guess that kind of <clears throat> leads nicely onto what I want to talk about with Dreamhouse, and I'm not going to go into the whole oh how does the band start because that's what the internet's for like people can go look that up mm. but like the one thing I did want to ask like when you kind of came up with like starting the band and the idea of the band was it always wanting to have like like no, no matter how many numbers you had but was it always to be an all-woman band or is that just something that kind of happened naturally yeah, like it definitely needed to be an all-woman band. I mean, our understanding of gender politics has come on a long way, even since 2015. Like we, when me and Janie started the band and, and recruited members, we were like, they need to be female. I think mm. if we were going to start Dream Nails today, we'd say they need to not be cis male. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't so much, so much matter that everyone in the band is cis female, is that they're not cis male or they, you know, to put it another way, everyone in the band is oppressed under a, a patriarchal regime and oppressed because of their gender. Like I wouldn't be at all averse to having like a trans man in the band, for example. Yeah. So it doesn't really need to be all female to be dream nurse, but that, you know, as I say, things have moved on. Gender politics moves really fast and that's, that's a good thing. But you know, I think how we see the band has, has also changed a bit. Um, having said that, yeah, we wanted, we wanted it to be all female at the time and um, mm. that's what we did. And in terms of like sound, like I want to obviously talk about the the new record a little bit in a, in a moment. But was it always to like I know this is going to sound a bit sort of cliche and the obvious sort of um, reference to make, but was it always the plan to kind of have that kind of like Riot Girl esque vibe, or again was that just something that like when you all got in a room that that kind of naturally happened or was it more of a focused direction of what you wanted the sound to be like? Um, I, I definitely think that uh, we were all inspired by like the riot girl aesthetic and politics, you know, such as Bikini, Bikini Kill um, or La Tigra. But like, I think that there was a lot of influence coming from our first drummer who, who had been playing in like loads of riot girl bands for a long time and she's very experienced and she kind of told me like, Anya, like, I think you should play these songs faster. And I think that you should put a lot more distortion on your guitar because I've just come from an alt 
indie R&B band. So I wasn't playing, <laughs> yeah. I was playing like semi-clean. I was like, D-d-d-d-d-d. she was like, no, I think we should have a bit more distortion, make it a bit more like rowdy. And I was like, okay. Cause like, I didn't really know about punk at that point. I mean, I, I knew what I liked from when I was a kid, but I wasn't like switched on to like how you create a punk sound um, in a band. Um, and I think as well, like Janie, like the first song that me and her wrote together was, I'm pretty sure it was Vagina Police. Um, and that was, you know, that's a very, that's a very outwardly political feminist song. Um, and I think I'm sure that Janie's lyrics are like to a great, great extent inspired by sort of riot girl bands in terms mm. of their like very like blunt, very feminist, unapolog- unapologetically feminist. But yeah, I think as a band, like we've always kind of cascaded between a few different sort of subtypes of punk so right girl being one of them but also pop punk and like catchy stuff like tuneful stuff yeah um because if you listen to like a right girl band like bikini kill there aren't actually that many there's not a lot of melodic content in the music <laughs> yeah. like there's riffage and there's like wailing kind of hooky shouting but dream Nails, like very quickly we wanted to put more melody um and harmony as well yeah so yeah it wasn't just a straightforward right girl moment for us it was a bit more nuanced <laughs> yeah. than that yeah so then in terms of like the the band evolving like you mentioned earlier kind of uh being offered these shows in in europe and kind of being flown out to them and, and things like that but like I'm, i can't think the when i kind of first came across you my memory completely blocks out now but as you mentioned earlier, again, that like when you first sort of started, that you kind of had this feeling that there was something a bit different to to this band and and things like that. But when was there a moment that you can remember, like, I guess like quote unquote fans coming into it and you like getting a bit of notoriety? Was there was there a moment that you can remember, like people were actually reacting to what you were doing and actually kind of giving a shit and kind of responding to what you were putting out as a band? Mm, um I think that we probably only played like maybe like three gigs when I realized we were like having actual fans in the crowd that I didn't I mean the thing about what makes a fan is like is 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 like a mate a fan probably it's a mate first fan second yeah but it's when you look into the crowd and you see people that you just definitely don't know who they are but they've come to see your band that was happening like really early, like oh, gig okay. three or gig four or something like that. Um, and even the first gig we ever played, like the room was absolutely packed. And I think that was partly because it was a feminist only night run by loud women who were really brilliant for supporting feminist and, and women focused bands. Um, and the atmosphere was just like really alive and people mm. were really enjoying it. And I don't know. I think it's just like the feedback we were getting from the beginning. And then I kept, and I started hearing like my mates tell me like, oh, my mate, I was talking to my mate the other day and they said they love Dream Nails. And I'm like, who are they? And they're like, oh, it's so-and-so. And I'm like, I don't know who they are. It just felt like <laughs> yeah. word of mouth was like building around us so much that we could actually say we had a fan base very fast. Um, so there wasn't any specific moment. It was more those, oh, I remember another time where like, um, a friend of Janie's, I think, was like on Tinder, and and she kept on. She said she kept on seeing like people, like writing their interests as Dream Nail, like one Dream Nails is one of their interests on their Tinder bio. That's, and I was like, that's what quite the funny. Fuck? Yes. <laughs> and I was like, 
she was like yeah like it's a mark of like being a cool queer woman in London right now if you like dream nuts and I was like shut up because you know <laughs> we were still quite a young band at that point like we hadn't really figured out what was going on um so yeah those kind of moments like resonate in my head a bit but yeah I don't know yeah and then in terms of like going again there's something that I always find interesting like going out on on tour like the kind of experience that you kind of have of that and I know you sort of said like having your mind blown at sort of like being flown out to shows but I guess like in terms of actually hitting the road and going to other towns and cities or even going to to Europe and things like that like what was your kind of first experience like that like with Dream Nails because I like I don't I know obviously these sort of uh like feminist collectives kind of exist around the world and things but I think just in general especially on the continent like punk aesthetic and DIY aesthetic and things like that is very much like a bigger thing there and they kind of cater for it a lot more so I don't know like when you kind of went out on tour for the first time did you kind of have any expectations of like I guess because you kind of already had this buzz around you of, of like what to expect or we were you kind of overwhelmed by like the reception of, of like going out on the road and how how the band was received um I think that our first like major sort of touring experience was probably aside from like a few weekends away and stuff playing shows in the UK like different cities I think was probably when we supported Cherry, Cherry Glazer on their um, European tour. Yeah. Um, I think that was in 2017. I'll have to check, but I think it was, I think it was 2017. Um, and yeah, I mean, we had to work quite hard that tour because these crowds weren't our crowds. So, yeah. you know, they've come to see Cherry Glazer, who are an absolutely awesome live band. And we were, we had the like, we had the great honor of opening for them and like, you know, we were so thankful to be there and we worked our asses off to like impress their crowds. But what we were starting to see from like the first night when we played in Dublin, which, you know, we've never been to Dublin before was that like people were coming up to the merge ta- table table afterwards, after the show to see us just saying like, girls, well done. That's yeah, why I can't do Irish accent. Well done girls. <laughs> Absolutely love that show. Where can I buy your merch? Can, do you have any t-shirts? Do you have any CDs? You know? And we were like, Oh my God, like every night, we're getting so many new fans just because just simply from watching us play. Um, So we ended that tour with like a huge amount of new fans around Europe and we'd sold a shit ton of merch to them. And I think that was a really helpful sort of like base level for us. So then when we went and did subsequent like shorter tours headlining in, in Europe, we had like people that had heard of us and like liked us. And I think it really helped us to build little fan bases in in like Frankfurt in Germany or like Berlin or um, Amsterdam wherever it is like we've been there already and like people seem to know our name yeah that's cool so then in terms of like I guess a bit closer to home I think as, as I mentioned earlier like with diversity of music in in general like it has got better but it's still not anywhere near perfect but in the last sort of I guess five or so years there's been this like growth of like the queer punk scene and like bands like yourselves, like Petrol Girls, like the Tuts and so on and so forth have kind of created this really cool, like buzzing scene within the UK. So have you kind of like, I don't want to say like 
seen safer gigs or like more accommodating gigs but have you seen a change like over the years of being a band of of maybe like I guess when you were starting out maybe a more predominant cis male crowd to now being a bit more of an even split of everyone like have you seen that change do you mean like that change since I've started playing in bands you know 15 years ago or like that change during dream houses sort of well, well both really um well yeah certainly certainly the gigs I used to play at and went to when I was a teenager early 20s were like more men than women and the men would all stand at the front and yeah it wouldn't be a particularly safe space obviously like I don't always know what it was like as an audience member of those gigs but I imagine from the statistics that there were like groping and mm. and like sexual harassment during those shows because they must they had to be um but even during like the five years that Dream Now has been op- has been operating I think that there is a lot more awareness about like what makes gigs safe for women there's like organizations like good night out and like safer gigs for women who are doing loads of training and awareness around what needs to happen in venues and how bands can help and and how promoters can kind of do their bit so i think that things have improved a lot um and people do tell us like when i go to dream nails gig like i feel really safe i feel really free like i'm able to dance i can come by myself and i don't think that's going to be a problem and it's really amazing to like hear that i think as well like we have to be very aware that like the feminist DIY scene is a small bubble in the music industry as a whole and I don't know for sure if conditions have improved for like other gigs I mean I went to see Prophets of Rage last year because Tom Morello like invited us like Dreamhouse to go and go and catch him perform Mm. it was amazing and they're such a good band but in terms of like how I felt about being in the venue I'm not going to say I felt particularly safe because like the entire crowd were like really leery I'm sure they were lovely guys, but they were very leery and they were taking up a lot of space and um, they were like moshing and doing circle pits and stuff. And I wouldn't have felt comfortable even stepping one toe into like the main bit of the venue. I was in like this balcony bit. And um, it's not that Prophets of Rage have bad politics. They have really good politics. I'm sure like most of the guys had good politics that were in the crowd, but all I'm seeing is like a lot of violence and not that many women there. And I probably think that in a lot of mainstream punk shows, things haven't actually changed that much. Like, what's nice is when, like, a band, like, we, we, toured, with, we toured with Anti-Flag in um, January this year. And yeah. they always make a big point about, like, looking after each other during the show. And, like, if someone falls down, pick them up and, like, look out for what you're doing. And I think that probably helps make the space safer. But it kind of takes even more than that. It takes actual policy and, like, actual like training to make sure these safe these spaces are like as safe as they can be and i and i know that i know that like bands like anti-flag and lost profits sorry profits of rage care about this stuff but it's like it's not even just up to bands like we need venues doing their bit and we need it being part of essentially part of the rider that bands get it's like it's going to be a safe space yeah okay i'll 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 dig into it now because we're on the topic but like from my perspective as a cis male like obviously I want to try and do everything in my power that I can to sort of make sure that that is being followed through but obviously I'm just kind of one person and I don't like I used to promote shows but I don't anymore and things like that but like how 
from your perspective, like as you say, kind of like introducing these policies and stuff, but it's a lot easier said than done. So like, I don't know, like, how do you kind of see things being changed for the better, especially like in a time now where we've got the time to sort of think about these things and look at the possibilities of change? Like, what would you like to see implemented and how would you kind of like go about those changes? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think as radical as this sounds, I think that venues should be funded or else have the fu- find the funding for like sign language interpreters at a lot more gigs than they currently do. Um, I, I mean, never we, thought about that. Yeah, no, it's 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 pretty it's pretty cool. Like it's actually like a really great thing to do. Like we performed in the South Bank Centre with a sign with a signer. And it was awesome. Like they'd learnt the songs in advance and they were standing on stage with us and they actually really That's added so to our cool. performance. It was sick. Like we loved it. We thought they were brilliant. Um, and it meant that some like um, a few deaf friends could come along and, and watch and enjoy the show. So we booked a sign language interpreter for our now cancelled, um, sorry, now postponed album launch show in London. Yeah. Um, because we wanted to start like doing this whenever we could afford to, but it's very expensive. So I'm not saying those people shouldn't be paid well, but like the money needs to come from somewhere and it probably isn't sustainable to like get, pay them out of musicians fees often because they're the same as the fee. So you'd end up Mm. like not making any money off the gig, but you're paying a signer, which is cool, but like not really sustainable. Um, So I'd like, yeah, I'd certainly like to see like more accessibility. Um, I mean, I feel, I feel bad like shooting at like um, venues right now, especially independent venues because we all know like what dire straits they're in because of COVID. But yeah. it is a shame that so many venues are not in accessible places, like whether there's stairs or there's a lip on the entry point or there's not accessible toilets. Again, where's the money coming from? I think there should be more government grants towards arts venues transferring and changing their venue towards being accessible. Like I'd love mm. to see like pots of money that you could apply for. Um so that's another thing. I mean, stuff that's a bit easier to do and less expensive is making sure that all toilets are gender neutral so that you don't have any like trans people feeling uncomfortable attending. That's really easy. And then the stuff that you can do around like training staff to respond adequately and appropriately to like incidents of sexual harassment or like unsafe behavior. So yeah, there's like a big range of stuff that can be done. Some of them is really cost, some of it's really costly and some of it is practically free. Yeah. So yeah, good for venues and promoters to start thinking more about that. And, and, and yeah, it is a good time to do it because not that many are open right now. So maybe they could like spend a bit of time thinking about these, these changes. Yeah. And I, I feel really bad because like my memory, like completely forgets the name of the organization now, but I remember going to um, like a few gigs, I think it was in London. I can't remember now. But there was like a representative of this. Uh, it was it was like a, a sexual assault charity. But they were like at the show, and they were kind of there if anyone didn't feel safe and things like that. And um, some friends of mine, they did a tour in November. I was out on tour with them, and they like each so their record release. They were raising money for uh, Solidarity Not Silence, but every single show that we did on that tour they got in touch with like a local either like um sexual abuse charity or like rape crisis center or something like that and asked the representative of the charity to come along to the show 
whether whether it just be to like hand out like pamphlets or like just be a person sort of like there present kind of thing and like i think that's maybe one way to go about it like i know that's kind of putting a lot on the charity but maybe like having someone at the venue that's trained to kind of just be a presence and i don't know i don't know if i'm talking out my ass kind of thing yeah no not out your ass not no. i think that like I think I think it's definitely a solid idea to like have representatives of of campaigning organisations at gigs, um, raising awareness. Yeah, like giving out flyers. Um, I think I think people generally want to do the right thing, especially like punk fans who are generally like quite sweethearted people, and like often they just need a little bit of a nudge in the right direction in terms of where the help is needed most. Mm. And then just in terms of like sticking on that subject, something that that you've kind of done as a band collectively like at live shows and obviously the, the sound bite on the new record but is sort of calling for women and non-binary people to the front sort of thing that's sort of mm, an active mm-hmm. part of of your band and I know like just from sort of like attending your shows or like reading things about that that is very very much embraced but I'm gonna again I'm gonna make an assumption like when that when you first started doing that where and I guess like again as you say five years ago like gender politics was very much in its infancy compared to where it is now so like did people kind of understand that did they was there like a pushback from cis males like no I want to occupy this space I've got a right to occupy this space like and have you had to educate people along the way oh yeah it's been an entertaining time I mean when we first started (laughs) doing it and even now, like, you always start a gig not knowing whether the crowd in question are going to do women and non-binary people to the front or if they're going to cause problems. Like, it's it's never a guaranteed thing. Even when you're doing a headline show and everyone knows what they're getting in for, it only takes one guy to refuse to move back and to, like, be aggressive for the whole gig to, like, come to a standstill while we take off our instruments and wait for him to fuck off. But what we're <laughs> yeah. finding now is that is the rest of the crowd will kind of form a bit of a like an uh, organism and like kind of grab him and and sort of spit him out in a way so they kind of self-regulate a bit more than than perhaps at first and when we first started doing it yeah we'd get into like huge arguments with men at the front and you know we're not the gender police and I appreciate this there's always a fine line between like you know you don't want to misgender anyone or like cause issues for anyone who feels uncomfortable because of this so you know we don't tend to pick on individuals we do tend to like trust people just do the right thing but sometimes it's a guy who's like got his shirt off and he's being an absolute arsehole and yeah you're in a squat in like oslo and it's an anarchist squat and it's a manichist arsehole like swearing at you in a different language and he won't move back and you're like whoa this is bad <laughs> um so like in that situation i think mimi ended up kicking him oh shit <laughs> he was trying to touch her pedal board and she was like nah so she kicked him in the middle of a song and she didn't even <laughs> skip a beat on the bass she was playing fine so you know like we you know we, by any means necessary <laughs> yeah fair enough well if we kind of deep dig a bit deeper into like the band and the music and stuff a, a little bit so obviously like the new record's now out and like it's i fucking love it it's really enjoyable but the, the oh, thing that i wanted you. to kind of ask you about is i guess going back to your kind of songwriting experience but and i've like read in other interviews that either you yourself or Janie have done that 
everything with Dream Now seems to be very sort of collaborative. So like when you're kind of coming into the writing process, like are you all kind of bringing ideas to the table or are you kind of sitting down hashing out ideas? Like, and especially like lyrically, because especially with this album, like it's very kind of on the nose of the time now, like obviously with references to sort of like WhatsApp responses and kind of obviously having that soundbite of um, that incident when the the two women were attacked on the bus and, Mm. and things like that. Like, are these conversations that you're having, like what you want to put into a record? Like, how does it all kind of come together? Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like the the way that most of the songs have been written follows a pretty similar pattern where me and Janie often would meet, meet up and she would have, like, the, the some ideas for lyrics and then we'd right. sort of, like, start with that and then, like, expand out into a song and I'd have, like, an acoustic guitar and we're just, like, messing around and, like, joking around and kind of trying to think of song structures and, and melodies and things like that. And then at that very raw moment we'll bring the song to the rest of the band so that's Mimi on bass and, and Lucy on drums and we'll then sort of jam it out properly figure out what's working about the song what isn't and there might be it might be an iterative process where then I will often at that point go away and work on the song some more and like think about what went well from rehearsal recordings and what doesn't sound so good and maybe Janie will like revise some of her lyrics maybe Lucy will like work on a drum beat individually you know maybe me and Mimi will think about a bass line or something I mean it Mm. really depends but Mm. then we'll come back together and and sort of refine and and sort of improve the song um and that you know in the in the band rehearsal zone like there will be a lot of ideas flying around and everyone's got like an opinion on how the song's sounding which is usually really useful because you know often like a song needs just a second pair of eyes a third pair of eyes like what's working yeah, yeah. about it what isn't so it's very collaborative and, and it's a fairly it's a fairly like trusting space in terms of like accepting criticism over like your work and um you know it's not always easy like creative collaborations are you know always a bit tense at times but that's because everyone cares so much and also we're all mostly self-taught musicians and so you know we're always pushing our abilities as hard as they'll go like a lot of dream Nails bpms now are like 175 180 so mm. like we've all had to like really like scrub up in terms of how we deliver <laughs> yeah. the songs live and stuff and i think we're all just like yeah like pushing each other to like play the best we can and write the best we can um yeah and, and certainly lyrically as you say like yeah we are it's a very responsive album in terms of responding to like what's happening in the world right now um and they do come out of conversations that we'll have with each other and like running jokes that we'll have like for example um yeah you mentioned um text me back chirps degree burns which was written based on a true story and a lot of jokes that were had like after a certain glass degree where we played and like you know a few band members got like jilted uh (laughs) let's just say (laughs) and like there was a lot of in jokes about that that kind of turned into a group therapy session that turned into a song yeah Um, so yeah, we have a lot of like, we have ongoing discussions about like where fem- feminism's at and like what makes us angry, what makes us laugh. And that sort of drip feeds into the song content eventually. Yeah. And I think just think on that takes me back. I think the the lyric, like the two blue ticks lyric is just spot on. It's just so good. <laughs> yeah. Relatable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but like on that aspect, because like, even though it's like touching upon like, lived experiences or like like political issues or like something that's quite 
quite sort of like heavy in subject matter there's a kind of a tongue-in-cheek approach to it and like this record I don't know like if you didn't do any research on dream nails or didn't look into dream nails or whatever if somebody just wrote down on a piece of paper dream nails feminist punk they might have a preconceived idea of what that's going to sound like but in reality the album is really upbeat it's really uplifting and really fun so like was like is that something that you wanted to bring to this record like okay you're touching on these like touchy subjects or like real life like stories but you're having fun with them is that something that you wanted to do like kind of bring a new spin to the kind of stereotypical feminist punk sound yeah I think that like instinctively as people because navigating the world as a feminist as a queer person as a woman is often so difficult um and there are so many rocks that get thrown at you the whole time whether metaphorically or <laughs> occasionally literally that you've got to be really good at cheering yourself up and like mm. cheering your friends up and so we all use laughter as a sort of therapeutic device uh, and, um, you know, like laughing at stuff and like sharing jokes and joy is probably the only way that we really all get by in life because things can be really difficult. Um, so I guess we instinctively like applied that logic to the songs that we wrote because often the subject matter is so dark and heavy, um, for example, like reproductive justice and like, or like, um, uh, sexual assault, things like that. Like we find ways to alleviate our own sort of pain through songs and through laughing. Um, so there's two, there are two sides of the same coin, really. Like there are lots of really fantastic feminist bands that are quite serious with it, and mm. there's totally a place for that. But I think that what's nice about Dream Nails is that you're right. Like if you see feminist punk band written down and you go check out dream nails you might be pleasantly surprised and i think that's a nice way of questioning and maybe inverting what people's expectations of feminist is like yeah it's an interesting one really because i think that there's always been an anti-feminist sort of uh rhetoric around like feminist killjoy or like feminists are no fun and like that but it's actually feminists are like some of the funniest people i know because they're <laughs> yeah. so like they're so on it and they they're just like super super aware of like how fucked up society is and they're willing to make jokes about it they're willing to sort of like crack a joke about it so yeah for me it doesn't really have to mean like fe yeah feminism and comedy for example like female comedians they've really struggled against this idea that women aren't as funny as men um, yeah, yeah. Or funny to who? Because again, the funniest people that I know in my life are female. Um, yeah. But it's like, can you be a funny feminist comedian? Well, it sounds like it's a bit of a paradox, but actually, yes, of course you can be. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think there's still like that baggage in people's heads around the word feminist, even as feminism's having like a new wave. So yeah, it's a yeah. pleasant surprise. And like on that kind of like. I guess the fun, not, well, not comedy in some aspects, but like the funny kind of side of things, like the videos that you've done all have like an element of like comedy or silliness to them, but also like, again, a kind of an element of collaboration, like with the Kiss My Fist, like video, like 
you've got all these incredible like skaters in it and things like that and so i guess again like was like do you kind of kind of sit down and come up with like a concept of what you want like the videos to be like and i don't know like because you've kind of now got like this aesthetic well in some aspects an aesthetic of like having these silly videos do you try and like one up yourselves each time or are they are they just <laughs> ideas that kind of come to come to mind um yeah uh, i think to be honest we we didn't always we haven't like not every single music video that we made is like goofy there are a few mm. back in the archive of youtube that are a bit more i guess a bit more serious but, yeah and we started working with this director gwen maroney it really like helped us to kind of like embrace our inner goofy music video selves um she's got like a really wildly creative um totally mad approach to making videos with us and she totally gets what we're about um and pretty much any idea that she has for us in terms of making a music video we just say yes to so oh, that's cool a lot, yeah a lot of the concepts that you'll see in dreamland's music videos if it's if it's totally mad it's probably gwen whether that's <laughs> lucy dressing up as a giant planet mercury which is actually a, a black a blueberry costume or whether it's like <laughs> us all dressed as police rolling out of a van onto the street literally doing like some somersaults or whether it's like yeah more well, the more recent one where like um <laughs> mimi's interviewing a dog with a microphone yeah. pretending to be a <laughs> yeah. newsreader like it's which all, i thought it's was brilliant when really and you know yeah we, we may have like a rough idea for the for the video based on what the song is about but she'll just run with it and we always run along with her like we pretty much never say no to any of her ideas so that's yeah. what comes out the other side so yeah and in terms of kind of like promoting like the record obviously at the moment because it's a very weird time because like as you said like you've had to postpone your record release tour and things like that and obviously that would be the norm for for a band to be doing their record cycle and okay i know you're doing this interview now and you and janie have done various other sort of press bits and so forth which is kind of normal but like in terms of like having to push the record in a time where you're not being able to go out live i think like from a personal perspective you're one of the bands that have done it really well in terms of like engagement and things like that but also like i think this is a really good time for people to discover your band and kind of it's an album that like as i say because the the subject matter is quite tough you can you can sit with it and absorb it so have you kind of found that because people have got more time on their hand that they are kind of taking that approach to to the record that they're sort of sitting with it they're digesting it a bit more and rather than because we're, where music's so like flitting now with streaming that they might sort of check it out once and then kind of that's it like have you found that people are kind of digging into it a bit more hmm interesting idea um i suppose to a certain extent i don't have the sort of control trial where like there's another alternative universe where we release an album and it's <laughs> yeah. not coronavirus and you know we'll see how people re respond then i think that it is interesting how many repeat listens we're getting and that's just from people saying on social media mostly like I love your album. I listened to it a hundred times or I listened to it for all my workout sessions or I can't stop playing your album. So I feel like it's a very Moorish album and mm. people are giving, yeah, people are really giving time to it. You know, it's, I think it's becoming a favorite of theirs, which is such a wonderful pleasure for us to like know that. And I think as well, like 
people are, are telling us that what their favorite song is is changing so they might listen to the album first like one time and they might think Jillian's their favorite but then they listen a few more times and they might actually decide that Kiss My Fist is their favorite yeah and they'll tell us that and they'll tell us why and I think it's amazing to have that feedback probably the fact that it has been such a shitty year and the album is as you say like pretty uplifting as well as very political I think people yeah I think people want that it's a super fast album like the BPMs are off the scale and <laughs> yeah. yeah I think I've, I read somewhere that people are listening to faster music at the, slightly faster music on average at the moment oh, okay maybe in a bid to like cheer themselves up so yeah I like to think that this is an album that can cheer people up without but still being quite real about what's going on in the world so I think that's probably like it's probably yeah the the political climate is not working against us right now let's say although of course we all wish things could be very different from how they are yeah and in terms of kind of like um like self-promotion and things like that obviously you've recently did a, a session with radio one and obviously you've done the the kind of live stream gigs and things like that so have you found that side of things quite interesting like to approach like i guess like I'll touch on the Radio 1 thing first, just because I think where, again, your music is quite catchy, like, I don't know, if you were to be that, like, quote-unquote stereotypical, like, angry feminist punk band, like, you may not necessarily be a band that's flagged up on Radio 1's radar, but because you've got these catchy hooks, but you're talking about these serious issues, that... I don't know, like, you're a perfect band to be fit into that opportunity. So, I don't know, is that something that you're kind of taking the ball and running with, that you've now kind of put your foot in that door, so you now want to kick it down and show the world what Dream Nails has got to offer? Yeah, I think that's, that's a, like, a good observation. Like, we are fairly radio-friendly. Like, I think we haven't had a load of radio play but we have had support from like some pretty amazing djs like amy lemay and um jack saunders and yeah like um steve lamack and people like that so we've definitely had an in with with radio i think that we're yet to have our like first radio hit mm. <laughs> Do you know what i mean and i think for, to a certain extent that's about us like thinking more deeply about like how our songs could best work on radio and like what songs we should be writing next that maybe will have like that wider reach at the same time it's not something that super bothers us like we know that we're already always going to be like a uh, like cult classic not bestseller type band <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to quote the streets um but yeah there's 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 more to be explored in terms of like maybe creating one or two tracks that are basically like venus fly traps in the sense that they'll just like entice people in with like some killer hooks but actually they're just gonna like fucking bite you and kill you alive so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see we'll see what happens and then like in terms of like the live streams like how have you kind of find found that environment because like, I've, again i've spoken to a few people that have done like various like live streams sort of uh, either whether it be acoustic or something like that but the kind of you're having a live gig and you've got an audience there, but you haven't necessarily got that instant sort of feedback and gratification of either if it's just a round of applause or something like that. Has it been quite strange or have you kind of got used to it now that you've done a couple? Um, yeah, it was really, really weird doing a house party. Um, so that's what they call, we call them at our yeah. females house parties. And 
we've managed to get like really fantastic um, recording studio for that because we've got some PRS like funding support to do like some live stream shows. So we've been able to like push the boat out a bit in terms of like, yeah, budget. And, and we were really happy with how it was sounding and looking. So that added to our confidence when we were performing. Um, but there's still that slight leap of imagination where like we knew that there were lots of people tuned in online and we could see their comments mm. like, yay, dream nails. And like that made <laughs> yeah. us feel like, oh, there are people actually watching this. But we still kind of had to just perform to camera and, you know, and, and it is it is a bit of a challenge if you're a live musician and you're used to having that energy exchange between people and enjoy, enjoying your music, dancing, smiling cheering and then you like giving out more energy back to them it's like it's like a beautiful kind of symbiosis we don't really have them in the room you've got a kind of just like jazz yourself up a bit and, and perform to the best of your ability and I think we kind of got used to it like by the end of the show it stopped feeling weird yeah it felt a bit more like oh this is just like a new thing that we can do and I think we're going to do another one, another house party at Christmas called Feministmas. Yeah. And I think like now that we've done a couple already, like I think we're a bit more ready to, to sort of like do it and really know how it's going to feel in advance. And, and I think we'll have even more people tuning in this time. It's going to be like a global live stream and it's going to go out. Um, I think it's going to go out on the 5th of December. And yeah. Um, yeah, we hope to have like, I think we had 350 people watching live for the first one so we hope to like have even more people watching live for this one and yeah just create a real like nice community feeling and sort of everyone just get the energy from knowing we're all online at the same time <laughs> yeah that's cool right yeah. um and before i let you go just what, one more thing i want to kind of touch upon briefly because you brought it up but also just because i'm interested as well so you mentioned tom morello but also you mentioned the tour that you did with with anti-flag and i think like in the grand scheme of like modern punk, they're kind of two of the biggest names that you kind of think of sort of thing that are mm. very much behind the dream nails sort of message and kind of what you guys are doing as a band. So like, I guess firstly, like what was the touring experience like with, with anti-flag and secondly, like how did the relationship with Tom Morello come about and the fact that you've got someone that's got such a global audience as he has kind of, singing your praises what was that kind of like yeah totally surreal I mean as I said a lot of us in the band grew up listening to Reg Against the Machine and, and it's actually been mad like meeting Tom and having like hearing that he actually loves our music and has been playing it on his radio show and I mean essentially like we were put in touch with Tom via a friend of Janie's uh, about a year and a half ago now and um, what happened was he wanted to like release one of our tracks through his label firebrand oh, okay. a record label out there so he yeah i think he released like corporate realness in in the states under firebrand um and yeah we like met him as i mentioned we went to a prophets of rage gig and met him backstage and yeah he's kind of just been um a really amazing ally and has been sort of shouting about us and, and boosting our sort of profile um and i think it was through those connections that we made with with not only um firebrand and tom morello but like you know just the, the scene around them that we we kind of got linked up to anti-flag and and they were looking for like more support artists for their for their january tour and we were like very very keen to be considered yeah. for that so i mean what was great about seeing anti-flag perform i think was it seven times i don't know i don't know how many dates we did with them but it was a good few times um was just seeing like how absolutely fantastic 
they are at like um designing sets and like live sets that really kind of galvanize people and um uh create like huge moments of togetherness and yeah you know as a as a as a band that are still in our relative like, infancy like being able to learn from one of the greats you kind of need to see a show more than once more than twice to really understand how it's been put together and that's what was a privilege about touring with anti-flag is like we learned from their professionalism and their and their like techniques mm. a lot so and also to be honest quite aside from that they were really lovely guys and we hung out and all got along really well and they're just hilarious so we kind of <laughs> yeah. as well as that we just like had a great time and it all just feels like such a weird like other era time now because even just yeah. the idea of like playing in somewhere like Lisbon and like all having a chat backstage and having a bit of food seems like a million zillion miles away from like what's possible right now um, yeah but we feel very lucky as well that we had that experience before like the drawbridges went up <laughs> <laughs> yeah and just in terms of like that anti-flag tour because admittedly like it's been a while since I've seen them live but I remember like the last time I did they were playing like quite decent sized venues sort of thing and like this is no disrespect to to you as dream nails but as you say you're still a band in your relative infancy so to go from like playing the, the size shows that you would maybe be doing on your headline your like your own headline shows to doing mm. the size of venues with them was that like quite a daunting thing or was it something that you kind of embraced and kind of like enjoyed it was actually fine. I mean, even though they did play a few quite big capacity venues, especially in Madrid, I remember that was an especially big venue, maybe a thousand capacity or something. We actually, luckily enough, we are actually pretty used to that now because um, mm. we've played like a fair few big stages and big sort of, yeah, like big capacity venues. I mean, not always, they're not always full to capacity when we play them, but it gives you that experience of filling a bigger space and having confidence during your performance and, and it's a different tech setup of course when you're playing those huge yeah. stages like you you tend to have your own sound mixer on stage with you te there tends to be more tech people running around you know little things like the drum kit is going to be a lot boomier and a lot echo echoier when you're playing those big stages so you need a different kind of mix in your monitor like all these things that you pick up from experience we've kind of had so yeah we weren't really scared when we were doing those gigs but um what what we really want now, of course, is to have the chance for us to do more headline touring. Now the album's out, and see if we can we see if we can pack out some smaller venues again, like you know your two hundred, your two fifty cap in in the UK, and like yeah. get a really exciting atmosphere of just like sold out show. Everyone there knows your album. Like that's what we really want right now is to kind of go back to basics a little bit, but have it kind of maximum hype. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Perfect. Right. Anya, how I usually end these is to ask my guest um, what their favourite song is, but with a bit of a twist. And I don't know, this might be different for you because you've been doing the live streams, but it might not. I don't know. But what's your favourite Dream Now song that you like to play live and why? Mm, interesting. Um, I think that my favourite Dream Now song to play live at the moment would be um, Swimming Pool. Okay. because it's a really happy fast song which is always fun because then I get to smile and like you know dance around and <laughs> yeah and that's always good I also just like really like my guitar bit in it like it's um there's a lot of melody playing which is fun and I get to like sing this bit 
towards the end, which is like the lyric is it's going to be okay. Yeah. And I really like being able to sing that to a crowd of people, just like telling them it's going to be okay. <laughs> it's just really nice. <laughs> That's cool. It's always, a good, it's always a good vibe swimming pool is. <laughs> Perfect. Brilliant. Anya, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. And oh, My pleasure. Thanks so much. Best of luck with everything. And yeah, hopefully rescheduled tour next year. We'll, we'll be out and seeing you. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope to meet you in person one day soon. Yeah, perfect. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Cheers. Bye. So there we have it, folks. Again, a massive thank you to Anya for taking some time out of her day to have a little chat with me. Um, as always, you can keep up to date with what Dreamnails are doing on all their various social media platforms. Um, as Anya mentioned, they're doing the Feminismus uh, live stream around sort of Christmas time, but they've got various other things kind of going on in the pipeline, so it's worth checking out. But yeah, all the links and whatever will be put in the, the uh, show notes. Um, also, during the discussion, Anya kind of measured, um, sorry, mentioned a few organisations like uh, Good Night Out and Safe Spaces for Women. Um, if anyone's unaware of the work that they do or wants to learn more, again, I'll put the, the links in the description notes sorry show notes description notes um yeah just so people can find out a little bit more about those but yeah thanks again for for checking the show out whether it's the 166th time or the first time you listen to the show really really appreciate everyone giving ears to this if you could rate subscribe review on whatever uh podcast platform you're listening to the show on would really really appreciate it we seem to have been getting a little bit of momentum in the last sort of couple of weeks so yeah let's keep going let's keep pushing and get some more ears on this really really appreciate everyone sort of checking things out um but yeah i'm gonna leave it there we'll be back again next week so thanks again for stopping by the justin inside podcast and i'll see you soon